Section 2 of The Beast Jewel of Mars by Lee Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Edith Keswick of Southern Ohio. The Beast Jewel of Mars by Lee Brackett. Two. Burke Winters got his bearings finally when Phobos rose, and he could guess where they were heading. They had slipped quietly out of Cahora, he and the slender young Martian who had joined him unobtrusively in the Triplanet Bar. A flyer waited for them on a private field. Cor Hall waited also. They took off with a fourth man who looked to be one of the big barbarians from the northern hills of Kesh. Cor Hall took the controls. Winters was sure now that they were bound for the low canals, the ancient waterways and ancient wicked towns, Jakara, Valkis, Barrakesh, outside the laws of the scattered city-states. Thieves market, slave market, vice market of a world. Earthmen were warned to keep away from them. Miles reeled behind them. The utter desolation of the landscape below got on Winters' nerves. The silence in the flyer became unendurable. There was something menacing about it. Core Hall and the big Keshi and the slim young man seemed to be nursing some common inner thought that gave them a particularly vicious pleasure. Its shadow showed on their faces. Winters spoke finally. Are your headquarters out here? No answer. Winters said rather petulantly, there's no need to be so secretive. After all, I'm one of you now. The slim young man said sharply, Do the beasts lie down with the masters? Winters started to bristle, and the barbarian put his hand on the wicked little sap he carried at his belt. Then Cor Hall spoke coolly. You wished to practice Shanga in its true form, Captain Winters. That is what you have paid for. That is what you will receive. All else is irrelevant. Winter shrugged sulkily. He sat smoking his sedative tobacco, and he did not speak again. After a long, long time, the seemingly endless desert began to change. Low ridges rose naked from the sand and grew into a mountain range, of which nothing was left now but the barren rock. Beyond the mountains lay a dead sea bottom. It stretched away under the moonlight, dropping, always dropping, until at last it became only a vast pit of darkness. Ribs of chalk and coral gleamed here and there, pushing through the lichens like bones through the dried skin of a man long dead. Winters saw that there was a city between the foothills and the sea. It had followed the receding water down the slopes. From its height, Winters could see the outlines of five harbors, abandoned one by one as the sea drew back, the great stone docks still standing. Houses had been built to fill their emptiness, and then abandoned in their turn for a lower level. Now the straggling town had coalesced along the bank of the canal that drew what feeble life was left from the buried springs of the bottom. There was something infinitely sad about that thin, dark line, all that was left of a blue and rolling ocean. 
The flyer circled and came down. The Keshi said something rapidly in his own dialect, from which Winters caught the one word. Valkis. Cor Hall answered him. Then he turned to Winters and said, We have not far to go. Stay close by me. The four men left the flyer. Winters knew that he was under guard and felt it was not entirely for the sake of protecting him. The wind blew thin and dry. Dust rose in clouds around their feet. Valkis lay ahead, a stony darkness sprawling upward toward the cliffs, cold in the eerie light of the twin moons. Winter saw, high up on the crest, the broken towers of a palace. They walked beside still black water, on paving stones worn hollow by the sandaled feet of countless generations. Even at this late hour, Valkis did not sleep. Torches burned yellow against the night. Somewhere, a double-banked harp made strange music. The streets, the alley mouths, the doorways, and the flat roofs of the houses rustled with life. Lithe, lean men and cat-like women watched the strangers, hot-eyed and silent, and over all Winters heard the particular sound of the low canal town the whispering and chiming of the wanton little bells that the women wear, braided into their dark hair, hanging from their ears, chained around their ankles. Evil, that town. Ancient and very evil, but not tired. Winters could feel the pulse of life that beat there, strong and hot. He was afraid. His own civilian garb and the white tunics of his companions were terribly conspicuous in this place of bare breasts and bright kilts and jeweled girdles. No one molested them. Cor Hall led the way into a large house and shut the door of beaten bronze behind them, and Winters felt a great relief. He turned to Cor Hall. How soon? he asked, and tried to conceal the trembling of his hands. Everything is ready, Winters. Hulk, show him the way. The Keshi nodded and went off, with Winters at his heels. This was very different from the hall of Shanga in Kahora. Within these walls of quarried stone, men and women had lived and loved and died in violence. The blood and tears of centuries had dried in the cracks between the flags. The rugs, the tapestries, and the furnishings were worth a fortune as antiques. Their beauty was worn, but still bright. At the end of a corridor was a bronze door, pierced by a narrow grille. Hawk stopped. He said to Winters, Strip. Winters hesitated. He carried a gun, and he did not like to leave it behind. Why out here? I'd rather have my clothes with me. Hawk said, Strip here. It is the rule. Winters obeyed. He walked naked into the narrow cell. There was no comfortable table here, only a few skins thrown on the bare floor. A barred opening showed darkly in the opposite wall. The bronze door rang shut behind him, and he heard the great bar drop into place. It was completely dark. He was really afraid now. Terribly afraid. But it was too late for that. It had been too late for a long time, ever since Jill Leland was lost. 
down on the hides. High above in the vaults of the roof, he could make out a faint, vague shimmering. It grew brighter. Presently, he saw that it was a prism set into the stone, rather large and cut from a crystalline substance that was the color of fire. Poor Hall's voice reached him through the grill. Earthman! Yes? That prism is one of the jewels of Shanga. The wise men of Kerdu carved them half a million years ago. Only they knew the secret of the substance and the shaping of the facets. There are only three of the jewels left. Sparks that were more energy than light flickered on the stone walls of the cell, gold and orange and greenish blue. Little flames, the fire of Shanga, to burn the heart. Because he was afraid, Winter said, But the radiation, the ray that comes through the prism, is that the same as in Kohora? Yes. The secret of the projectors was lost with Kerdu. Presumably they use cosmic rays. By substituting ordinary quartz for the prisms, we could make the radiation weak enough for our purposes in the trade cities. Who is we, Korhal? Laughter, soft and wicked. Earthman, we are Mars. Dancing fire, growing, growing, glinting on his flesh, darting through his blood, his brain. It was not like this in the solariums with their pretty trees. It was pleasure there, tantalizing, heady pleasure. It was exciting and strange. But this... His body began to move, to arch itself into strong, writhing curves. He thought he could not endure the lovely, lovely pain. Poor Hall's voice boomed down some huge, fateful distance. The wise men of Kerdu were not so wise. They found the secret of Shanga, and they escaped their wars and their troubles by fleeing backward along the path of evolution. Do you know what happened to them? They perished, Earthman. In one generation, Kerdu vanished from the face of Mars. It was getting hard to answer, hard to think. Winter said hoarsely, Did it matter? They were happy while they lived. Are you happy, Earthman? Yes, he panted. Yes. The words were only half articulate, twisting, rolling on the hide rugs in the grip of such magnificent, unholy sensation such as he had never dreamed of before. Burke Winters was happy. The fire of Shanga blazed down upon him like a melting away, and there was nothing left but joy. Again, poor Hall laughed. After that, Winters was not sure of anything. His mind rocked, and there were periods of darkness. When he was conscious, he knew only a feeling of strangeness. But he carried one memory with him, at least partway down that eerie road. During a lucid period, a space of only a minute or two, he thought that one of the stones had rolled back to reveal a quartzite screen, and that through the screen a face looked at him, watching as he bathed naked in the beautiful flame. A woman's face, Martian, high-bred, with strong, delicate bones and arrogant brows, 
and a red mouth that would be like bittersweet fruit to kiss. Her eyes were golden as the fire and as hot and proud and scornful. There must have been a microphone in the wall, for she spoke and he heard her voice, full of a sweet, cruel magic. She called his name. He could not rise, but he managed to crawl toward her, and to his reeling brain she was part of the unearthly force that played with him. A destruction and a fascination as irresistible as death. To his alien eyes she was not as lovely as Jill, but there was a power in her, and her red mouth taunted him, and the curve of her bare shoulders drove him to madness. You're strong, she said. You will live until the end, and that is well, Burke Winters. He tried to speak, but he could no longer form the words. She smiled. You have challenged me, Earthman. I know. You've challenged Shanga. You're brave, and I like brave men. You're also a fool, and I like fools because they give me sport. I'm looking forward, Earthman, to the moment when you reach the end of your search. He tried again to speak and failed, and the night and the silence came to stay. He took the sound of her mocking laughter with him into the dark. He did not think of himself now as Captain Burke Winters, but only by the short personal name of Burke. The stones upon which he lay were cool and hard. It was pitch dark, but his eyes and ears were very keen. He could tell by the sound of his breathing that he was in a closed space, and he did not like it. A low growl rumbled in his throat. The hair stiffened at the back of his neck. He tried to remember how he had come here. Something had happened, something to do with fire, but he did not know what or why. Only one thing he knew. He was searching for something. It was gone, and he wanted it back. The wanting was a pain in him. He could not remember what the object was that he wanted, but the need for it was greater than any obstacle short of death. He rose and began to explore his prison. Cautious testing told him that there was a passage beyond. He could see nothing, but the air that blew into him was heavy with strange smells. Instinct told him it was a trap. He crouched, resolute, his hand opening and closing in desire for a weapon. There was no weapon. Presently, he went into the passage, moving without a sound. He went a long way, his shoulders brushing stone on either side. Then he saw light ahead, red and flickering, and the air brought him the taint of smoke and the smell of man. Very, very slowly, the creature called Burke padded toward the light. He came close to the end of the tunnel, and suddenly a barred gate dropped behind him with a ringing clash. He could not go back. He did not wish to go back. Enemies were in front of him, and he wished to fight. He knew now that he could not come upon them secretly. Flexing his great chest, he leaped out boldly from the tunnel mouth. The tossing glare of torches dazzled his eyes, and a wild mob howl deafened him. He stood alone on a great block, the old slave block of Valkis, though he did not know that. They stared up, 
jeering at the earthman who had tasted the forbidden fruit that even the soulless men of the low canals would not touch. The creature called Burke was still a man, but a man already shadowed by the ape. During the hours he had bathed in the light of Shanga, he had changed physically. Bone and flesh had altered under the accelerated urging of glands and increased metabolism. Already a big, powerful man, he had thickened and coarsened along the lines of brutish strength. His jaw and brow ridges jutted. Thick hair covered his chest and limbs and extended in a rudimentary mane down the back of his neck. His deep-set eyes had a hard and cunning gleam of intelligence, but it was the intelligence of a primitive mind that had learned to speak and make fire and weapons, and no more than that. Half-crouching, he glared down at the crowd. He did not know who these men were. He hated them. They were of another tribe, and their very smell was alien. They hated him, too. The air bristled with their enmity. His gaze fell on a man who stepped out lightly and proudly into the empty space. He did not remember that this man's name was Cor Hall. He did not notice that Cor Hall had shed the white tunic of the trade cities for the kilt and girdle of the low canals nor that he wore in his ears the pierced gold rings of Barrakesh, and was now honestly himself. A bandit, born and bred among a race of bandits who had been civilized for so long that they could afford to forget it. Burke knew only that this man was his particular enemy. Captain Burke Winters, said Cor Hall, man of the tribe of terror lords of the spaceways, Builders of the trade cities, masters of greed and rapine. His voice carried over the packed square, though he did not shout. Burke watched him, his eyes blinking like red sparks in the torchlight, weaving slightly on his feet, his hands swinging loose and hungry. He did not understand the words, but they were threat and insult. Look at him, O men of Valkis cried Cor Hall. He is our master now. His government kings it over the city-states of Mars. Our pride is stripped. Our wealth is gone. What have we left, O oh, children of a dying world? The answer that rang from the walls of Valkis was soft and wordless, the opening chord of a hymn written in hell. Someone threw a stone. Burke came down off the slave block in a great effortless spring and sped across the square, straight for Cor Hall's throat. A laugh went up, mirth that was half a cat scream of sheer savagery. Like one supple creature, the crowd moved. Torchlight flashed from knife blades and jewels and eyes of glittering green and topaz and the small chiming bells and the points of the deadly spiked knuckle dusters. Long black tongues of whips licked out with a hiss and a crack. Cor Hall waited until Burke almost reached him. Then he bent and pivoted in the graceful Martian savat. His foot caught Burke under the chin and sent him sprawling. As he rolled, half stunned, Cor Hall caught a whip from a man's hand. That's it, Earthman, he cried out. Grovel. 
belly down and lick the stones that were here before the apes of earth had learned to walk. The long lash sang and bit, lacing the hairy body with red wheels, and the harsh mob scream went up. Drive him! Drive the beast of Shanga, as the invading beasts of old were driven by our forefathers. And they drove him, with whip and knife and spike, through the streets of Valkis under the racing moons. Jeering, they drove him. He fought them. Mad with fury, he fought them, but he could not come to grips with them. When he lunged, they melted before him, and each way he turned, he was met by the lash and the blade and the crippling kick. Blood ran, but it was all his own, and the high, shrill laughter of women pursued him as he went. He wanted to kill. The lust of killing was more red and strong within him than his blood, but he reeled under the pain of many blows, and his sight was dim, and where his great hands closed on flesh to tear it, he was himself torn and driven back, dragged down by the lashes curled around his throat. At last there was only fear and the desire to escape. They let him run, along the crumbling ways of Valkis, up and down the twisting alleys that reeked of ancient crime. They let him run, but not too far. They blocked him off from the canal and the freedom of the sea-bottom beyond. Again and again they headed the panting, shambling creature that had been Burke Winters, captain of the Starflight, and drove it higher up the slope. Burke moved slowly now. He snarled, and his head wove blindly from side to side in a pathetic attempt at defiance. His blood dripped hot on the stones, and always the insolent, stinging lashes drove him on. Up and up, past the great looming docks with the bullards and the scars of moored ships still on them, and the dust of their own decay lapping dry around their feet. Four levels above the canal— Four harbors, four cities, four epochs written in fading characters of stone. Even the dawn man Burke was oppressed and frightened. There was no life here. There had been no life for a long time, even in the lowest level. The wind had scoured and polished the empty houses, smoothing the corners to roundness, hollowing the doors and windows, until the work of man was erased. Only strange things were left that looked as though the wind had made them by itself out of little mountaintops. The people of Valkis were silent now. They drove the beast, and their hate had not abated, but was intensified. They walked here upon the very bones of their world. Earth was a green star, young and rich. Here the Martians passed the marble pier where the kings of Valkis had moored their galleys, and the very marble was shattered under the heel of time. High on the ridge above the oldest city, the palace of the kings looked down at the scourging of the interloper. And in all of Valkis there was now no sound but the whispering of little bells that was like the sigh of wind on another world, where the women ran on their small bare feet, ankle-deep in dust. Burke climbed ape-like up the history of Mars. His belly was cold with the terror of these dark places that smelled of nothing, not even of death. He passed a place where houses had been built within the curve of a coral reef. 
he clambered over the reef and saw above him a sloping face of rock with gaping holes that the sea had made he climbed that not knowing or caring what it was on the level space above he passed the broken quays that had once made safe mooring in the bay and stopped to look back they were still hunting him his flanks heaved and his eyes were desperate he went on scrambling up steep narrow streets where the paving blocks had fallen out and the houses had come down in shapeless heaps and his hands and feet left red prints where he put them down then at last he was at the top of the ridge the great bulk of the palace loomed above him against the sky primitive wisdom told him the place was dangerous he skirted the high wall of marble that ringed it, and suddenly his twitching nostrils caught the scent of water. His tongue was swollen in his mouth, his throat choked with dust. His need was so great, with the salt bleeding and the fever of his wounds, that he forgot his enemies and the menace of the mountain thing behind the wall. Breaking into a ragged lope, he went forward along the cliff-top until he came to a gateway and plunged through it, and suddenly there was turf under his feet, soft and cool. There were shrubs and flowers pale in the moonlight, heavily sweet, and dark branches against the sky. The gate closed silently behind him. He did not see it. He ran down a grassy ride between rows of trees trimmed into fantastic shapes guided by the smell of water. Here and there were strange gleams and glints of statuary, wrought in marble and semi-precious stones. Burke's skin crawled with an awareness of danger, but he was too weary and too mad with thirst to care. The ride ended. Beyond was an open space, and in the center of it was a great sunken tank, carved and ornamented. The water in it was like polished jet. Nothing stirred in the open. A wing of the palace rose beyond the tank like a black wall, and it seemed that nothing lived there, but Burke's hair-trigger nerves told him otherwise. He stopped in the shelter of the trees, sniffing the air and listening. Nothing. Darkness and silence. Burke looked at the waiting water. It filled all his senses. Suddenly, he ran toward it. He flung himself belly down on the slabs of turquoise that paved the brink and buried his face in the icy water and drank. Then he lay there panting, utterly spent. Still nothing moved. Then, all at once, a long howl rose on the night from somewhere beyond the palace wing. Burke stiffened. He got to his hands and knees, every hair on his body bristling with fear. The howl was answered by a strange reptilian scream. Now that he had satisfied his thirst, the night wind brought him many odors. They were too numerous and tangled to be identified, except for a strong musky taint that made his flesh crawl with instinctive loathing. He did not know what sort of creature gave off that taint, but it filled him with horror because it seemed that he almost knew and did not want to. He wanted only to get away from that place that was so full of secret life and hidden menace and silence. He began to move toward the trees, back the way he had come, slowly, because he was wounded and very weak. And then, quite suddenly, he saw her. 
she had come without sound into the open space out of the shelter of huge flowering shrubs she stood not far away in the shifting glow of the little racing moons watching him she was shy and large-eyed poised for flight the hair that hung down her back and the shining down that covered her body were the color of the moonlight burke stopped a tremor went through him all his sense of loss and his desperate searching came back to him and with them a desire to be closer to this slender she a name spoke itself from some dim chamber of his soul jill she started he thought she was going to run away and he cried out again jill then step by step uncertainly she came nearer lovely as a fawn in spring she made a questioning sound and he answered burke she stood still for a moment repeating the word and then she whimpered and began to run toward him and he was filled with a great joy he laughed and mouthed her name over and over and there were tears in his eyes he reached out toward her a spear flashed and fell quivering between them she gave him a cry of warning and fled vanishing into the shrubbery burke tried to follow but his knees gave under him he turned snarling tall keshi guards in resplendent harness had come out of the trees circling him they carried spears and a net of heavy ropes in a moment he was surrounded the spear points pricked him back until the net was thrown and he went down helpless as they carried him away he heard two things the wail of the silver she and from somewhere nearby a woman's mocking laughter he had heard that laughter before he could not remember where or how but it filled him with such fury that he was finally knocked over the head with a spear butt to keep him quiet end of section two